0: Today's New Testament lesson is from the book of Luke, chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. Now during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose twelve of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, and his brother Andrew and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, indeed. Tracy, we're grateful to you for reading our lesson this morning. And again, uh, what a wonderful thing it is to see each of you and also to be with you all at home who are streaming. Uh, Allison, thank you and Laura for bathing us in prayer today. Uh, We're grateful for that. And to many of you who have remembered me over the last couple of weeks, I've had eye surgery a couple of times the last couple of weeks. And I want you to know that as a result of that, it's a miracle, I have 2015 vision today for the first time in maybe 50 years. So, Forrest, I can see your expression from here on up in the back. The, The problem with that, however, is I can't really see my watch up close, which may be a prayer concern for some of you. Uh, but ask for your patience as well. And I tell you what, I won't look at my watch if you won't look at your watch today, deal? Deal, okay. Two of you I saw shake your head, so deal. Um, We started a new series uh, two weeks ago called Teach Us to Pray. And what's interesting is this is a 10-week series that we're doing in part of a year-long series called Walking with Jesus, right? And so we're gonna spend the whole year in the Synoptic Gospels, but we're beginning this first subsection of sermons on the series called Teach Us to Pray uh, with another reading from Luke's Gospel. And by now you know if you have studied Luke before, That Luke, more than any other narrative, more than any other gospel account, Luke accents, emphasizes the role of prayer in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Christ. What's interesting to note is the major events in the life of Jesus are always precipitated by prayer. And if you read ahead to Luke's sequel, which is called the book of Acts, you see the same thing is the case there in the life of the early church. In fact, the word prayer is mentioned in the book of Acts no less than 32 times. And so it's the keynote really for discipleship according to Luke in the book of Acts. It Reminds me something of F, uh, that F.B. Meyer once said, and I love what he said, the greatest tragedy in life is not unanswered prayer but unoffered prayer the key moments in the movement are always bathed in prayer saturated in prayer including the episode that we just read the choosing of the 12 now, I want to repeat the verse that we started with that Tracy read for us so well chapter 6 verse 12 Luke says now during those days Jesus went up the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when the sun came out, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. That's an interesting word in the Greek. An apostle, apostolos, is not the same as a disciple. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is an intern or an apprentice, a student. But an apostle is one who is commissioned, who is sent out. The word apostolos literally means to send out. It means one who has been deputized by their leader, one who has the power of attorney to speak for their teacher. Unlike many of us, Jesus was not a solo hero leader. In other words, he didn't come to save the world all by his lonesome. He chose a dozen men, and a handful of women to do the work. 12 men, why 12? I've, I've often wondered why, why not choose eight or 42 or 103? Why 12? The number 12 corresponds in the Old Testament with the 12 tribes of Israel, right? The number 12 correlates with the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 territories of Israel. And so in the New Testament, the number 12 becomes a numerical symbol of continuity. What Luke is suggesting by that number is that what God began in the Old Testament with Jacob and sons, he's now continuing through Jesus and the apostles for the restoration of Israel and the reconciliation of all creation. Now, a question that you might have that I had as I studied the scripture is, how did Jesus decide who to choose? I mean, by this point, in Luke 6 of Jesus' ministry, he had numerous followers. He had hundreds of disciples, maybe even thousand who were following him. He also had enemies. We know that as early as Luke chapter 5, the Pharisees were onto him. They were on his back But how did Jesus know who to pick? Well, Luke gives us a simple answer. He said it was because of prayer. He spent the whole night focusing, praying, intercessing with God about these 12. He didn't randomly come down the next day and pick names out of a hat. He didn't ask for a show of hands. Those who wanna be apostles, come along. He didn't ask for volunteers. He sought God's guidance through intercession on a mountaintop and the next day he comes down and he drafts them, he picks them, he enlists them and he taught us in the church to do the same. If you go just four chapters up to Luke 10 verse two, Jesus coaches the church by saying this, look, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers to the field. And there's that phrase again, send out apostolos, emissaries. So what you see in the text is that apostles are not really volunteers, they are called Those of us in the ministry often speak of ministry as a calling. In fact, if you had a few minutes later this afternoon, if you call Laura and Allison, every minister has a call story. They would be happy to tell you their call story. My call story happened on a Native American reservation on a mission trip when I was 16 years old, and I still remember it to this day. It's not simply something you choose to do, ministry. It's something you are chosen to to do. You are called. And you don't have to be a part of the priesthood to be called. There is no division between spiritual and secular. You're called as a teacher to represent Christ, as a lawyer, as a medical worker, as a facility worker. You're called of God. I remember Dorothy Sayers, who was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, a marvelous writer from Great Britain in the 20th century. She said it like this. Listen to this. A calling is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. Let me say that again. A calling is not primarily a thing one does to live. It is the thing one lives to do. An apostle. She goes on to say, it is... The full expression of your faculties, the thing in which you find spiritual, mental, and bodily fulfillment, and the means by which you seek to please God. I had a friend of mine call me the other day. He said, I just saw a t-shirt I wanted to tell you about. I said, what did it say? He said, I saw someone wearing a t-shirt that said, and I quote, I can only please one person a day. Today is not your day. And then underneath it, it also said, tomorrow doesn't look good either. It's not what you do to live. It's what you live to do. To be a disciple, to be an apostle, to be called of God. I think this is exactly what the apostle Paul meant when he wrote to the Corinthians in his first letter, chapter 9, verse 16, where he says this. Listen to this. For if I preach the gospel... That gives me no grounds for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. I am compelled. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. In other words, Paul cannot not do it. And so it is for the called. So it is for the apostles. So after an all-nighter on the mountain... Jesus comes down and picks his team. Now, it's fascinating to me that all three synoptics, if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all list the 12 names with slight variations in each text. There are two sets of brothers, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, James, and John, all fishermen, sons of thunder. There are two Simons in the list. There are two James in the list. There are two Judases in the list. What you'd note about these disciples is they are not necessarily the brightest and best. They are not necessarily the sharpest pencils in the box. None of them are theologically trained. None of them have been to seminary. None have positional authority. None are members of the Sanhedrin or the board of ordained ministry. Some are fishermen. One's a tax collector. One's a zealot. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But all that to say, this is a curious collection of humanity that Jesus chooses. They are all Jewish. All but one is from Galilee. And Peter is always the first mention. You notice that? He is the de facto leader, already as early as Luke 6. And who is always the last disciple to be called by name? It's Judas. Judas Iscariot. Who Luke already refers to as a traitor. I think, for me, the most peculiar thing about this group is that Jesus chooses a tax collector and a zealot to be in the same small group. Now, now let me tell you how risky that is. A tax man is somebody who's in bed with the Roman government, and a zealot is essentially a Jewish nationalist who wants to blow up the government. And so it would kind of be like today in the 21st century, having an IRS agent and a member of Antifa in the same Bible study. That, that, That would be an explosive mix. I think you would all agree that these 12 are not all alike. They don't see eye to eye in their theology. They don't all agree on politics. In fact, they really only have one thing in common. Just one little thing. They love their rabbi. So much so, they're willing to leave everything. And the other thing, their rabbi loves them completely, unconditionally. Every one of them was handpicked by Jesus. And eventually they will confess him and worship him as Messiah. He is the glue that holds them together. Now, I I recognize that sometimes we forget that the original confession of the church was not the Apostles' Creed. That's a beautiful creed. We affirm it and believe it. But that came four centuries after Jesus ascended. The original confession of faith is really just three words. You know what they are? Jesus is Lord. That's it. And that single confession made all the other distinctions irrelevant between those 12. Now, if you flip over to Galatians, you see Paul saying something very similar to that. He says, in Christ Jesus, there is no Greek or Jew. In Christ, there is no slave or free, no male or female. In other words, let me say it like this. Ethnicity is irrelevant in the presence of this rabbi. Status, socioeconomic status, irrelevant. Gender, irrelevant in the presence of this rabbi. And when I I read that, I sometimes wonder how far could you take that? I mean, let's think for a minute. Do you think that you could say in Christ Jesus, there is no Republican or Democrat? I don't know. Do you think you could say that in Christ, there is no progressive or traditional, no moderate, libertarian? Do you think that the Lordship of Christ might render those distinctions irrelevant? Now I've been straining a little bit about that and I'm gonna say something now that you may disagree with and if you do, it's okay, you've been wrong before. But it occurred to me the other day that if it's true that our confession, Jesus is Lord, makes those old distinctions irrelevant, I wonder if when I reintroduce these distinctions, does that make my confession irrelevant? It's something to think about. I I just lay awake and think about these things when you read the scripture. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir, almost literally. We have usually about this number in the choir. I'm concerned as are you about the state of our culture and our nation in these days. And I think sometimes, this is just me, it's not you, Sometimes my need to be right outweighs my need to love. But I've been called. You've been chosen to be different. Our calling as a sent people is to imitate Jesus, to do what he did to love like he loved, to do what he did. What did he do? He blessed the poor and the marginalized. He ate with people that he shouldn't have eaten with, sinners, tax collectors. He defended the outcast. He just showed compassion to lepers, to people who were weak and sick, who were considered the least, the last, the lonely, the lost. That's what he did. And that's what we do. There's something else in this text that I find rather curious. If it's true that Jesus knew which ones to choose because of prayer, then why did one of them turn out to be a traitor? If God revealed on that mountain, choose these 12, why did Jesus pick Judas? I mean, What are the possibilities? Did God mislead his son? Do you think Jesus misjudged Judas? Didn't know what kind of man he was? Well, some say Jesus knew everything all the time, all along, but God needed a fall guy. And so Jesus chose Judas to do his dirty work. But that doesn't sound much like God to me. That sounds more like the devil to me. To say that Judas had no choice in the matter... I have a hard time with that because that may mean you don't have a choice either. Maybe it's all sewn up. There is no sense of free will, but I have a hard time with that. And the truth of the matter is, it wasn't just Judas that messed up. All 12 of them failed Jesus. All of them. When they got to Jerusalem, they all ran for their lives and they left their rabbi to die by himself. I've discovered that just because you're called doesn't mean you're immune to betrayal. We said it last week in that wilderness scene, just because you're a son or daughter of God does not mean you're invulnerable to temptation and to denial. It doesn't mean that you may not go AWOL in fact, I, I remember when I was a seminary student in the middle 80s in Atlanta, I remember a person, the most gifted person in our class. He had the brightest mind. He, was, he had the best voice. He was about six foot three. He had, he had everything. He was a gifted speaker, an attractive person, and there was no doubt in our mind that that man was called. But he turned back. He threw in the towel. He abandoned ship. And I remember Jesus saying again in Luke 9, nobody who puts their hand to the plow and turns back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And it's a reminder to us that just because we're called doesn't mean you can't turn back. I remember another one who turned back his name was Demas. You ever heard that name? He gets one verse of Scripture in the New Testament Demas. In the early church, there was a man named Demas. He had been converted under the ministry of Paul. Jesus picked him through Paul, and Paul put him to work in the church, but it didn't last. I mean, Jesus even told us that not every seed that's planted is going to bear fruit. And Paul called Demas out. <laughs> In 2 Timothy 4.10, listen what he said. But Demas has deserted me because he has fallen in love with the present world and he has abandoned the gospel. Boy, how would you like that to be your epitaph? He gets one line. Because he put his hand to the plow and turned back i got to tell you, I have no judgmental feelings towards Demas because there's a little bit of Demas in all of us. We have all turned our back at some point on grace, but our rabbi never turned his back on us. And if we learn to walk with Jesus in discipleship, in this journey, in this path, if we learn to pray... Like Jesus, if we're covered in the dust of our, of our rabbi, the Spirit will equip you to go the distance. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I got to tell you, what amazes me about even Judas is that even in his failure, somehow his failure is woven into the redemptive work of Jesus. God didn't make Judas betray him, but neither did Judas's betrayal hinder God's redemptive purpose. God can even use a failure. God can even use an apostolic failure. To accomplish his divine purpose in our world i want to give you one example of that and i'm finished there's an old tale an old story that comes out of india about a water bearer perhaps you remember this story he had two large pots water pots each hung on the end of a pole by which he carried across his neck. One of the pots had a crack in it, while the other pot was perfect and always delivered a full portion of water at the end of a long walk from the stream to the master's house. The cracked pot, however, arrived only half full. For two years, every day, the same thing would happen. The bearer delivering one and a half pots of water to his master's house And of course, the perfect pot was proud of its accomplishments, but the cracked pot was ashamed. It was only able to do half of what it was made to do. And one day, as the story goes, the old pot apologized to the water bearer for the crack in its side. And in compassion, the water bearer said to the old pot, I want you to notice today... As we return to the master's house, I want you to notice the beautiful flowers along the path. And sure enough, as they climbed the hill, they took note of these beautiful wildflowers. It was a cheerful sight, but still, at the end of the trail, the old pot had again leaked out half of its load. The water bearer said to the pot Did you notice that the flowers were only on your side of the path, not on the perfect pot's side? That's because, he said, I have always known your imperfection. I've always known your flaw, and I actually have used it. For I planted seeds on your side of the path, and every day, unbeknownst to you, as you walk by that path, you have watered these seeds. For two years, he said, I've been able to pick beautiful flowers from my master's table because of you. And without you being who you are, he would never have had such beauty in his home. End of story. What's the point? The point is that even cracked pots can be used to do something beautiful. The point is that there are no perfect vessels in this house or on this stream. There are no halos in this group. They, like we, often two steps forward, one step back. They, like we, have struggled with their calling, but Jesus never gave up on them. And in his prayer on that mountain, God gave to his son a vision of apostles to share his work And you are a part of that vision. God is still calling. In fact, he has a mission with your name on it. And when you discover it, you will do it because you can't do anything but that. This calling of God is not a thing we do to live. It is the thing we live to to do in fact woe to us if we do not proclaim the message may it be so in you in me in us to the glory of god amen